Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company is my panel. We've got Emily Carver, who's the columnist at Conservative Home, filmmaker Kerry Dingle, and environmental policy researcher Laurie. Uh, I always call you Laurie Leibourne Langton. We don't do that anymore, do we? We shorten it. I got married. I got yeah, married. you got married, Laurie Leibourne. Good evening to all of you guys. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co. by now. It's not just about us. It is not. It's about you at home as well and your thoughts. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. I was listening to Polly then, by the way, and I can't uh, help but comment on that Twitter story. What do you think to that? Do you use Twitter? Are you a user of Twitter, like I am, that actually thinks it's a terrible place to be? Sometimes I do. So actually, I wasn't going to talk about that story tonight. But you know what? If you can't go off topic on your own, show what can you do so i will get into that conversation as well a bit later on in the show uh, don't forget if you haven't already you can subscribe to us on youtube we've got an app we're on the radio so wherever you are good evening to you you are very welcome tonight now emmanuel macron has become the first french president to be re-elected in 20 years the centrists took uh, almost 60% of the vote in the end, 58% compared to Marine Le Pen, who got 42%. Got to be honest, uh, this was a m much narrower victory, wasn't it? Then back in 2017, I think Marine Le Pen, I think it's fair to say, she got smashed then, didn't she? But it is indeed her third time where she's failed to be elected. I've got to say, it wasn't really, though, in my view anyway, it wasn't a, a straight win just for Macron, on Macron alone. I reckon there was a lot of people there that really didn't want Macron, but um, equally didn't want Le Pen. And I wonder, how was he now going to unite that country? But importantly, Emily Carver, you know, what does this whole kind of re-election of Macron mean for the UK? Well, I think, in general, it probably means more of the same. We haven't had the far-right candidate, Marine Le Pen, take uh, the presidency, which was a relief to uh, quite a lot of people in France. But and hang on, do you regard her as far-right? Because, you see, mm. I, I don't think in politics a lot of labels get thrown around to... You know, people say, oh, she is so divisive, while simultaneously providing very divisive labels to the same people. So do you think she was far-right? Is this a rejection of far-right ideals? Yeah, I think it is unhelpful to just call her far-right. You've seen 42% of people in France, well, of voters, there was, of course, a huge abstention as well. 28% of people didn't even bother turning up for that second round of votes. So that does show that people didn't want to choose between those two candidates. Is she far right? I think she's more of a socialist nationalist, actually. She's got quite... She's very left-leaning on economics, protectionist. She wants to nationalise industries and so on. Um, on the right, her national, nationalist instincts, you can certainly call right-wing in terms of, you know, bans on cultural symbols, for example, the headscarf... Uh, massively reducing immigration into the country, those sort of proposals can be considered right-wing. But I don't think it's helpful in our political discourse to just dismiss her and all of her support, which is considerable as being far-right. I'm not sure that helps with the uh, discussion, probably not. More of the same then, Kerry? Is that what we've got to look forward um, to? I'm afraid so, and I think Emily's right. And I, I think you're right, Michelle. I don't think we can just apply left and right 
in the old way. I know people who see themselves as very left-wing who voted for Marine Le Pen because of Macron's attacks on working-class people. I also know people um, who consider themselves right-wing who voted for Macron to keep Marine out. You know, I, I don't think left and right just works in the same old way. And there was also, uh, I think the figures were something like 8% who turned up and voted what's called vote blanc, which is like, you know, nothing. So, uh, spoiling the vote, I suppose, in this election. So, I think you're right. People were holding their nose on either side of this. And Macron is going to have a very difficult job uniting the country, precisely because his reforms and his failure to de deal with the cost of living crisis is quite extreme. Mm. And by the way, you mentioned spoiled by, uh, ballots. I've run for election in this country, obviously, twice. And I've got to say, one of my uh, most favourite parts of that whole process is you gather around at the uh, counting and you have all your spoiled ballots and you kind of go through them and you make sure that you all agree that they are indeed spoiled. And some of the things, ladies and gentlemen, that you see on those spoiled ballot papers, they are not for innocent eyes like mine. I can tell you what people write and draw on some of those papers. I've no idea if it's the same in France, but it's hilarious when it happens here. Anyway, I digress. Laurie, your thoughts? Um, I agree with this point about Macron's uh, inability to deal with some of the real pressing problems that people are facing day to day, which are manifesting now in the cost of living crisis. And I think it goes to the point that we've been talking about uh, around how labels are becoming increasingly unuseful. Um, we've seen now for a number of decades a political project that cuts core services and support for people in society, allows particularly very wealthy people to, to play by a different set of rules. We're kind of experiencing our version of that here in the UK. And then erodes the power of normal people, people who are in jobs, so they have to work for all their income over and over again. And for me, it is no surprise to see a situation in France where more extreme politics, whatever we will label of it, is starting to rise up. And Macron's biggest challenge now is to actually finally break from that decades-old political project and make the investments that support everyday people to get rid of the root causes of which the symptom is some more uh, extremist politics that we've seen in the context of this election. Yeah, go on, Emily. I would just say that, you know, state planning, uh, expenditure on the public sector is huge in France, bigger than it is here, greater than it is here. Clearly, that level of state control of the economy has not worked. Macron, to his credit, did try to introduce free market reforms into France, and that it's been very difficult for him, protests, etc., etc., against any changes he might want to bring in, any uh, changes to regulation in the labour market, for example. It has been very difficult for a French president to take a completely different stance on the economy than previous presidents may have done so. Marine Le Pen wants to bring it back to more state control of the economy. There are a lot of people who are more free market-minded who are very wary of that move from Marine Le Pen um, and hope that Macron would continue with that. But it looks like he's going to very much crawl back from that stance, that free market stance, and move back towards more, uh, you know, high public spending, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, well, I, I, I would... I would sl you know, I, I genuinely agree with the analysis you're making there of what will probably happen. I think that there are some really important ways we should think about the state in the context of the energy crisis that we're facing at the moment. The, the French energy supply, EDF, is partly state-owned. Macron was talking about taking more of that into state ownership, so he has 
more control, not less, more control over the ability to make sure he's supporting families in France who are in the same situation as families here. They're having to make choices between heating and eating. So I think there, we were talking about the breaking down of left and right and so on and so forth. Understanding that the state is a hugely important player in a world racked by crisis, like we saw in the context of COVID, is a really important thing. I think thing what that he's France needs is a more vibrant private sector. And France has huge amounts of regulation. It has very high taxes. And I think what France needs is probably economic growth, like we do over here, and they find it rather difficult over there. Uh, right, well, the Prime Minister has suggested that he's going to discipline the anonymous Conservative MP who claimed yesterday in the Mail on Sunday newspaper that Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner crossed and uncrossed her legs in Parliament to try and distract Boris Johnson. I mean, how random. Uh, Common Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle has asked for a meeting with the editor of the Mail on Sunday to discuss uh, the demeaning com uh, complaints, claims. And I tell you, there's been an awful lot of complaints about this. So there has. Kerry Dingle, what do you make to this? Uh, well, I'll just add to the complainants. <laughs> because I just think it's incredibly backward. I mean, it's really weird. And why the Mail on Sunday would call this journalism... You know, to be honest, I mean, if some Tory MP really went to the press with this, you just think, you know, what? who are they? It's a pornographic mindset to suggest that, you know, that that's how you deal with a political opponent. And I, I just think it's remarkably backward. I don't even know if I really believe it. Mm. And I think one of the conversations... That, interesting. But what, what I disagree with on? Angela on because she's come out and said, this just goes to show what it's like for women in Parliament. And that also makes me want to say, get a grip. I, I think good, you know, go for it, debate and rouse are, you know, regardless of your sex, are what we'd like to see. So cut all this victim stuff out. But this is, you know, somebody with a pornographic mindset who can't take politics seriously. Is it, Emily? Is that true? Do you, do you agree? Pornographic Yeah, mindsets? I mean, I think you're right that Angela Rayner is, is no wallflower. I mean, she was very vocal about what she thought about the Tories when she called them Tory scum, which isn't very nice for uh, those who vote Conservative, perhaps, as well as, of course, Tory MPs. Um, but, yes, this editorial was absolutely ridiculous. I don't know why they reported on it. But why on earth is the Speaker getting so involved and apparently wants to haul in, haul in the editor of the Mail on Sunday? That's absolutely ludicrous. We have a free press in this country. They don't have to reveal their sources. They don't need to go to the Speaker of the Commons. The MPs aren't employees. The Speaker isn't HR. It's... I think that's completely wrong. I think that's not the job of the Speaker to get a... To but bring hold in a on, Emily Carter, because you're going off script here because all women are supposed to be mortified <laughs> by this very suggestion uh, and we're supposed to be deeply offended and deeply upset by the whole thing, are you not? I think it's just because there's always stories like this time and time again and I do think a lot of it is faux outrage from people who want to make their own political opinions known and maybe that's a bit unpopular... Obviously, this editorial was bad, this report was bad. What that MP said, if they did say it, was not a nice thing to say, and it's very backward. But I do... I am tired of these identity-type stories about sexism and whatever. I Laurie, do find it tiring. your thoughts? Yeah, and I, I hope that's what people will say to the editor of Mail on Sunday. And I've never seen uh, an article in which someone has remarked about the 
the, the rippling muscles of the Chancellor or the distractingly handsome Dishy features of the... Yeah, well, that's a good point, actually. Uh, that is a good point. Yeah, but is... not in the context of <laughs> no, that being in distracting <laughs> in a parliamentary setting. And it's not just because the the cabinet don't have those features it's because well, we're seen wanting it. Oh, well, to actually no i was about to be i was about to be quite rude then some of the cabinet i'll zip my mouth <laughs> so you're saying you're saying that there's just pure double standards well i just uh, you know it, 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 it's backward the reason why we have said on the panel it's backward is because there has consistently been ways of talking about women in the mm. context of all jobs and politics is one of them and it's just it, it it's bizarre unfortunate and i think not really acceptable that it should be that we should have a report like this in a major paper. It doesn't mean that there needs to be some kind of rule where the Mail on Sun is banned from anything or anything like this. As we, as Kerry was saying, as a journalist, if a, an MP came to you and said this stuff, you'd just laugh them out of the room or say, "Oh, okay, sure, we'll uh, bear that in mind." But you would filter it out at that point. We want to encourage more women, particularly from Angela Rayner's background, to go into politics. But and this is not aren't saying kept out of politics because of you know, prurient, backward remarks. I mean, those things exist in the real world. And I just don't think that we're that wet or soft, particularly. No. <laughs> I do think it is prurient, you know, rubbish journalism. I have to say that. Mm. Although I think Emily's right, you know, the danger is that people start wanting to clamp down on press freedom, which we don't have free, a free press, let's be honest. There's an incredible amount of controls on the press already. And it's always this kind of stuff that's used an, as an excuse. But what do you think, though, because we talk about press freedom, which is fair enough, but what do you think about this kind of notion that a newspaper can just print something from a friend, a source, and it's mm. all done anonymously? Because I'm not... I speak as someone, by the way, that's had incredibly personal information put into tabloid newspapers that I don't believe should ever have been there. Mm. Um, and I've actually won a legal case against uh, in this subject against a very well-known newspaper, which I shall keep out of it. But I don't think it's appropriate, actually, that a newspaper can just print anything based on anonymous sources. I think they can... I, I would support the press pr printing absolutely anything. It doesn't mean I'd respect that journalism... It doesn't mean I'd think it was great or I particularly want to read it. I think you're right, Michelle, on how pathetic and spineless and cowardly anonymous reporting really is. But I think it's worth remembering that the father of press freedom in Britain, John Wilkes, um, you know, back in the 17-whatever, his first paper that got banned and he was put in the tower and London rioted was a dirty poem about the monarchy. I mean, just made-up filth, completely made up. And London rioted, you know, for Wilkes and, and press freedom because at that time you weren't even allowed to report on the monarchy, never mind write rude stuff. And I think we need more press freedom, not less. And in doing so, challenge these spineless, anonymous idiots. Well, Glynis, uh, she's watching. She's having none of this. She's saying, Michelle, I don't even believe that any of this has even been said by a Tory. She says, I think it's a made-up story to give the Labour Party something to complain about. <laughs> really? Really? Um, Nicholas has said, well, maybe um, people need to learn how to arrange their clothing. What about distraction <laughs> press? I'm hastily now going to check myself, my own clothing, make sure there's nothing distracting going on. Don't want any of that, do we? Um, right, let's talk Google, shall we? 
What do you think to this story? Again, I found it... It's, this is my problem. I found too much in society right now just, frankly, bizarre. This one is no exception. Uh, this is all about Google, uh, the latest in a long line of companies that are trying to almost engineer the way that we speak. And now they're launching an international... Uh, it's called, basically, an inclusive language function. So when you now uh, will type something, I don't know, say, landlord, it will come up with a prompt that basically says perhaps you didn't mean landlord, you might want it to be uh, more you know, inclusive and say property owner or something, instead of saying chairman, you might want to say chairperson. And what I would be tempted to say back to Google is, well, actually, I might want to think for myself. But am I missing something here, Laurie? Is it the role of a, a search engine to tell me how I should be more inclusive with my words? I think it's a, f it's a feature that can be turned off. and. Uh, I won't, for one, will not be cowering at my laptop at the idea that Google has introduced that feature. I may turn it off. But why is it annoying. needed? Well, we should ask Google that, right? I mean, I think no, a lot of... No, they're not here. I'm asking you. Don't ruin my fun. There's, there's, <laughs> a, uh, there's a wider... You know, I, I would assume that Google would say that there's a, a wider thing going on here, which is that, you know, certain phrases in society are from uh, past, more backward times when certain groups, like in the case of like, the word landlord, you're excluding the idea that the owner of property could be a female, for example, and I'm sure that's what they would say. But this is a feature that can be turned off. Um, I don't think we should be that scared of it. I think we should be talking about bigger issues with technology platforms like the news today that Elon Musk could be buying Yes, so Twitter. we'll come back to that, but hang on a second, because I want to know, Kerry, I... this whole language mm. thing, because I sit there and think, well, who is offended by, say, like, the, the concept of a landlord? Like, I'm a landlord, I call myself a landlord. I don't get offended because the term doesn't include me because it should say property owner so that I feel included in the concept. Well, I think that's absolutely right, and I think... Um, you see, I, I, I do think it's dangerous, Laurie, because this is kind of nudge in, in the language sphere. It's trying to nudge our behaviour because we are also apparently and unconsciously sexist, misogynistic, racist, that, you know, if we say housewife instead of stay-at-home spouse, I'd be like, what is one of those? <laughs> um, then obviously we're incredibly backward and our behaviour has to be policed and pushed. And that's what... And Google is... Even though at the moment this is going to be rolled out for business um, and the business corporate world, mm -hmm. you know, Google, Google Docs, not just Google Search, Google Forms, I mean, it's huge. And Alphabet that owns Google and YouTube and all these others are all going in this direction. This is big tech you know, deciding what we can and can't say, write, read, think, because we can't be trusted. And I think we need to really push back against these people. And, Emily, um, Kerry's saying there it's about big tech saying what we can and can't say. You know, to me, it's almost like we're being dictated to what's a good word and what's a bad word. And if you say this word, then you're not a nice person. And if you want to be a nice person, you've got to use this word. And it's that, I guess, that I rail, rail against, whether I can turn it off or not. The principle that is there in the first place, I find bonkers. Yeah, I hate that element of moral judgment. I don't want Google to have a political or cultural bias. They're providing a service that people use. They have no business telling me whether I'm offended or should be offended by gender-specific language, because it seems to me that it's all about gender-specific language. 
language that I might be horrified if someone wrote police men instead of police officers. I certainly would not, and I don't think many women would. And it's very sinister because if you control language, you are almost or you're on your way to controlling people's thoughts because if you don't have the language available, then you can't speak to a certain issue or to a certain uh, something that you want to describe. So I think it's very sinister and it is chilling and I think these tech firms need to be taken down a peg or two, in my view. Well, speaking <laughs> of tech firms, Laurie, let's bring it back to the point you wanted to nudge us into. Oh, by the way, we put a poll up on Twitter, you can still take part if you want, asking you, do you think uh, Google should please, basically, uh, what we, the words we should be using, you sensible individuals, you, because only 2% of you said yes, 98% uh, <laughs> of you so far have said no. But Laurie, uh, in the bulletin earlier on, was talking about Twitter, Elon mm. Musk buying the whole thing, good idea or not? Yeah, well, I th these are the issues that we should be spending more time talking about. Like, I, we should always be vigilant on what powerful groups in society are doing when it comes to regula potentially regulating what we say and what we do, right? And I also can understand and in some ways applaud being very vigilant about that and recognising how it could be a slippery slope towards certain things. But in other parts of the tech economy, we have slipped down the slope. When it comes to who owns them, the news today of Elon Musk potentially taking over Twitter, you know, what happens when one person who has very particular views has control over a platform that is currently being used by a lot of people to share their views? We don't know the answer to that. We also have allowed Google and other platforms to have huge penetration into mm. our lives purely based upon profit-making. We use them as if they're kind of benign services, like Google Maps, for example, right? They're constantly accumulating mm -hmm. our data. If yeah, a what are they going to do with this language data? If a, this person yeah. has changed it back to yeah. uh, policeman too many times, they must be a bigot. But that, so that, we need to be talking about the, the things behind, the, you know, determine that power imbalance, like the huge amounts of money these platforms make, the lack of regulation, the lack of taxes mm. they pay. That's the root well, no, issue that we need to It's not the lack of here. regulation, it's that they work on the regulation with government, so it benefits right. big corporations, exactly. often at the expense of the little ones. Well, actually, too many people are looking to big tech to be the regulators. Mm. And, and, in fact, interestingly, I find Musk less problematic. He's just, you know, incredibly rich, but he's also very big on free speech. I would never look to him to safeguard free speech, mm. but he's made a big point about that, and I'd say, yeah, we'll see. You know, Kasuna <laughs> says something he doesn't like. I do think they... Uh, Laurie's right about we tend to treat them as sort of, you know, benign, mm. you know, uh, hippy-happy, hoppy services, and they're not. They're extremely powerful. But I think it's up to us to not go down the road of more regulation, more interference, and allowing these people to dictate our words. But we should tax them properly. That's the start, right? Before we even get to regulation, we should... They should be paying their fair share. They shouldn't have the kind of access to lobbying that they clearly have in government. Well, it's They're the spending... awful things like Davos and those sort of things where the big corporations, the billionaires who own the big businesses, go and, you know, have backroom meetings with governments and decide the regulation. But it, it does seem to me that the government is doing all it can to make the internet a less free place yeah. when it comes to free speech. And I do think we should be worried about that, you know, safety versus freedom. We don't seem to have the balance right. So I think it's going to be difficult. But that's the online safety bill that's coming our way. Yeah, and I, I do. I want to know your views at home, by the way. Are you a Twitter user? Because it is really very often, it's like a sewer. Yes, I'm sure it has nice elements to it. I'm <laughs> sure that there are some nice things and people lurking. Maybe I just need to look <laughs> uh, harder and deeper. But I tell you, that place, personally, I would welcome Elon Musk getting involved and shaking it up a little bit. But what about you? Bernard says, it's easy, Michelle, if you don't like uh, Twitter. 
just close your account. Now, the Housing Minister, Michael Gove, is believed to be considering plans to build Britain's first deep coal mine for decades. The colliery, which will be built in Cumbria, will mine coke... This is the worst word, by the way, for my accent. Coking coal? Coking coal? Yeah. Who invented those words and asked me in a whole accent to read them out? <laughs> anyway, this is all about coking coal for the steel industry, so this is not the kind of stuff that you'll be using to heat your homes. Um, by the way, if it's, if it's um, approved, the mine will basically cut the reliance on imported coal for Russia. Now, I have to laugh when I hear that because most of this stuff is going to be exported. Far be it from me to burst the bubble um, of the rumours as to why things are happening. But, Laurie, your thoughts? You know, you are an environmental com campaigner. We're all about net zero. Yeah. Are you in favour of this or not? Um, so, I don't, I, we don't even need to talk about net zero here. We just need to talk about what you just said, which is that 80, over 85% of the coal that we've taken out of this mine, <laughs> under the admission of the company who would own the mine, will be exported. So it's not even doing what the government is saying it would do, right? This is a quote from the industry body for UK Steel. So as you were saying, the coal is not the coal we would use to heat our homes or put up power plants. It's coal that's used specifically to help make steel, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the, the body that represents the, the steel industry in the UK. The UK steel industry buys its coking coal on the world market, and it will continue to do so. It doesn't rely on um, one source versus another. So that coal will be taken out, and it will be sold to the highest bid on the world market. It's the same as, I don't know, the cows in the field next to my house say, uh, if I go to the supermarket and buy milk, they're not going to be necessarily from the cows next door. The milk is taken out and it's sold on a market that stretches across the country, right? So this coal will be exported. It won't make us in any way more energy secure for us making steel anyway. And you don't even need to talk about the environmental element. So what are you upset about then, Laurie? Are you upset about the, the principle of doing this or... Um, what some might call a false promise of we're doing this because? I think it's, yeah, in the immediate term, a false promise. Um, it's distracting for people at a time where people are so worried about security. So get rid of that. Security. Are you OK with the The resources then? should be spent on other things. You know, we're talking about the promise of jobs in the region. Even if they built it, we've got to get rid of the coking coal... Uh, being extracted and used in the UK because of things like net zero. So those jobs are probably not going to be there for the longer term. And those jobs should be coming in things like energy efficiency, making sure that we're less reliant on gas and other things that are making us less energy secure now. There are thousands and thousands of high-quality, well-paid jobs in upgrading our homes to make sure we make them warmer and our bills lower. And all the energy and resources and political time and so on should be pumped into that instead. I think that's disingenuous, Laurie, sorry. You know, even if the... you know, <laughs> What you're saying is underneath all this, because I, I think you wouldn't have a problem if somebody started up a business and half of it was for export. You wouldn't particularly have a problem with it. You have a problem with it because it's fossil fuels. That's what you're making a fuss about. And I don't think this is a problem. It will create 500 jobs. It will pull out uh, coking coal from under the Irish Sea. It will be... It was supported by a democratically elected Cumbrian County Council and then pushed aside by a, a minority of, you know, green activists and lobbyists when people in the region wanted it and they voted for it twice and it's been pushed aside. So I think if this goes through, I, I hope Gove doesn't bottle it, he probably will, um, then it'd be a bit of a breakthrough because I think we should question net zero. We should recognise that all your obsession with renewables and wind turbines, made of steel, by the way, will need coking coal. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, wherever it comes from, I haven't got a fixation whether it comes from Britain or elsewhere. I hope they get the cheapest stuff and the more you produce, it will become cheaper um, from anywhere. And wouldn't it be great if there were a few other resources we took advantage of that Britain has that actually could impact on energy shortages? But green politics and net zero don't allow for that. Well, Laurie, before you come back on that, because I suspect you might want to, um, Emily, I couldn't help but notice your face. When Laurie was talking, that did not look like the face of agreement to me. What's going on? Well, I just think if it's a choice between importing coal and digging it up, mining it up here in this country, where we probably have far higher environmental standards anyway and working conditions than Russia, for example, then it seems to me it's a no-brainer. And don't we have a moral duty to reduce our reliance on Russia for coal and also for gas, which I would argue we should probably be drilling for in this country to add to those exports to reduce Europe's reliance as a whole? You know, we all want to have a greener future. I don't think anyone really disagrees with decarbonisation. Well, some people do, but I think most people want us to be more sustainable into the future, and we know that we can't keep digging coal forever. But this takes time. It's necessary for the transition. You can't turn it off now. People would be freezing and living in the dark. Laurie, do you want to respond? The, the, the coal is bought in the world market. And so is gas. So it doesn't matter if you extract it Yes, but if we here, export we coal, that is a good thing. So, you're, yeah, but you were talking about having a mine here. Instead of getting it from Russia, having it here so it stays here because of the, the standards of jobs and other things, you just argued that we have a mine in the UK, so extract it here, and you inferred that we use it in the UK. It wouldn't. It no, would but by contributing to the European market for coal, we are reducing reliance on such regimes such as Russia, which is what all Western governments seem to want to be doing right now, and rightly so. The, yeah, but, you know, the UK, the, that, the world market is huge. Like we, the UK still gets most of its coal from Australia, right? This is not the argument that this is going to make a massive difference. You know, the whole world will suddenly be like, oh, my goodness, thank goodness they built that mine in Cumbria. Suddenly we've all got security when it comes to the coal that we use for making steel. It's just, it's, it's not but a credible argument. But we shouldn't just argument. say no to everything on, just because of a small... A bunch of activists who the steel, speak the loudest, you the know? Otherwise, everything would be cancelled on this basis. And, and Laura, you're not objecting to people producing wind turbines and exporting them. You are objecting to digging up fossil fuels per se, yeah, be, are you not? Well, so be, at least be honest about for two, it. Yeah, for two, of course, for two reasons. One, the, the steel industry is now using hydrogen and other more advanced technologies to make steel. And it is so and behind moved... in the possibility of using hydrogen now. It, that, that's unreal. And a lot of green politics does this. It says, oh, look, we could have a steel industry that's fossil fuel free. You know, we could have everything electrical without any discussion of where that electricity is going to be generated and how. And end up with a politics that makes us poorer, that doesn't do the sums. So hydrogen at the moment is not nearly there and will be really expensive compared with coal, for example. Doesn't do the sums, will make us poorer for some bizarre futuristic enterprise because it thinks that there's so many of us want to destroy the planet when we don't. So I think it's a real non-starter that is going to help people get into ever greater poverty. The, the steel industry is very open about how it's investing in modern, more efficient technologies. Um, that's not the case. They're not going to make people poorer. We know that we need to reduce fossil fuels 
if not just because it's leading to potentially catastrophic levels of global heating across the world, it's also because of other problems like um, the, the health impacts of burning, of burning coal and other things. It's also because when we're reliant on fossil fuels like gas, we're, we get pushed into the energy crisis like we're in now. If we were investing in, you don't even need to talk about renewables, energy efficiency in people's homes so they didn't have to pay such high bills and they didn't have to rely on heating their homes with gas, we'd be in a better position now. The government here is talking about how it's going to open one mine in one place ostensibly for energy security, it's not going to deliver on those stated aims. And it's not, you know, if we're going to pump all that money into making a mine of which the majority of the stuff is exported abroad and goes against our environmental and other goals, that, for me, is something that's making us poorer instead of investments that go into things like energy efficiency. Well, I'll tell you something that else that's making us poorer uh, as we speak, and that is companies taking the absolute Michael with how much they are in, uh, increasing their prices at the moment. Because, yes, I get it, uh, the cost of certain things are going up, but I don't know about you. In fact, I'm really interested uh, to know what you think about this. The reason I'm asking is because the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, he's asked Ofgem to basically look into what some energy companies are doing. Apparently, they're over-increasing uh, their prices and providing quite bad service at the same time. So Ofgem will be looking into that. But I'll tell you what I want to look into on Jubes & Co, and I'll come back to the Ofgem thing in a minute. I think it's much broader than just energy companies. I think there are so many uh, companies right now that are really, really inflating their prices beyond what they should. And I get it, a lot of companies have been forced to close. They've made perhaps uh, losses or reduced profits previously. But is it responsible right now to be increasing profits the way that many people are? And I'm asking this, by the way, as a capitalist, I don't mind a bit of profit. Um, but these are really unprecedented times, aren't they? And I worry. Uh, for an awful lot of people. So I'm asking you at home tonight, have you got examples of where, I don't know if it's your mobile phone company or your local uh, supermarket or whatever, your pub, your restaurant near where you live, where you're seeing huge price rises that are way beyond uh, the levels of inflation and things like that? Get in touch, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Let me know, at Michelle Jubes on Twitter. Uh, very briefly, just on this point about energy companies overinflating their prices, do you agree with that, Emily? Uh, I think they certainly are. I think this may be a result of government policy, though, rather than necessarily those corporates being particularly greedy, although they may well be. The problem is, is that we've had 27 suppliers of energy go bust, and that was due to the government's ill-thought-through energy, energy price cap, which, of course, they've had to raise because they can't control wholesale prices of energy. So, so many suppliers have gone bust. That means there isn't as much competition as there used to be. We used to have all these small companies coming in and offering you cheaper prices and offering you all these different, uh, you know, schemes and programmes you could go on with your energy bills and so on. But we just don't have that at the moment. It's going back to, uh, you know, a few companies being in charge of the market and that's not good for competition and it's not good for prices. Harry? I, well, I think, I think that's, that's probably true, but I think uh, Michelle is right that it's a, there is you know, across-the-board opportunism in terms of profiteering. And uh, I know just in terms of for the charity I run, the Energy Bill, after I'd signed up for the charity for a new contract, which is horrendous, the increase is 4,000 to 10,000 per, per annum, so we're going to switch our gas off, they turned around to me and said, oh, and that, by the way, there's no cooling-off period. We've abolished the cooling-off period. What, and the I'm 14 like, days? Yeah, I'm like, hang on a minute, I don't think you can abolish 
uh, legally, a cooling-off period. So I think there's some really dodgy things going on. And not only that, the endless calls you now get. I'm now getting endless calls because I went to a compare site. <laughs> endless calls wanting to sign me up for this and sign me up for that. And I'm just like, block it, block it, block it. Don't sign up for anything. Make sure you find another way to find out you know, what the decent prices are, because there's some real racketeering going on, in my view. Mm. Mm. Let me know what you think at home, because I am really interested in this, because I know I've got examples, but I want yours as well. I might um, do this tomorrow or the day after, we'll see, but I think it's a really important topic to get into. But, Laurie, on this energy one specifically, your thoughts? I mean, these companies have got previous on this, um, no matter the level of competition that we've had. Energy supplies have consistently taken advantage of customers, particularly who are of older generations, you know, various ways of pricing things and, and you know, having people extending their bill periods without necessarily knowing about it and so on. This has been happening for years and years and years. And this is just another blatant example in a long line of examples of where these com companies have, have exploited people across the UK. And it really is grim in normal times that it's happening now as the cost of living goes up and as we head towards a, a, a winter that's going to be even worse than we experienced last winter, it's just completely unacceptable. And it, it further hammers home the need for us to look at this energy market and recognise that things like competition in the past haven't answered all our questions. It doesn't mean we need to lurch in an opposite direction or anything, but we have to admit that these countries have been on the make, companies have been on the make for a long time. Mm. Well, Mike says, Michelle, on this whole price thing, a free market should allow uh, consumers to move away from high prices and that will keep all prices competitive. The problem that you've got now, uh, there is very little choice because pretty much everything is all going up and up and up. You're absolutely right. Uh, on the whole language conversation that we were having earlier on, uh, I was asking you, do you agree with Google, for example, trying to alter the language that you're using? So, say, for example, if you typed in landlord, it might come up with their property owner instead, etc., etc. Lots of feedback on that, I can tell you. Um, lots of you saying the alternate to landlord, Michelle, is landlady. Well, I don't know. I'm not Google. I'm not the one that's coming up with the <laughs> alternate word. You don't want you certainly don't want me coming up with alternate words. I can tell you, you get yourself into trouble. <laughs> um, Richard says all of this is straight out of Orwell's 1984. Dawn says I personally like the same English language that I was taught 50 years ago. She says the lady is not for turning. <laughs> and I think you're actually right there, Dawn. I think there are so many different examples now of words that we all used to just know what they meant, um, suddenly been up for grabs. What is the meaning of various words? Sometimes I think if, you know, if someone had been in a, a coma or something for 10 years, woken up today to listen to the basic words, now being questioned, what does this mean? What does that mean? What is a woman? What is this? I think they'd be incredibly confused, some people, so they would. That is the sentiment um, that's coming through loud and clear on the email. I don't really think anyone so far has emailed in saying that you do agree with it, you do want Google um, to kind of suggest different words to you. If you do want that, tell me, let me know what you think. Lots of conversation um, around the French election. Again, the sentiment coming through there from the viewers is that 
you very much agree with what you've just been hearing, which is not uh, necessarily this is in favour of Macron, but more against Le Pen. I found that quite interesting. And I've got to say, not my views, the views of many viewers, many people are writing in saying um, that they're just not sure about the source of this comment. Uh, is it a suggested ploy by Labour uh, to try and smack the Conservatives once more, but today on a different topic? Do you, what do you think to that? Is this made up? The Mail on Sunday is part of the, the Mail on Sunday is part of Labour's grand strategy to get elected. I'm not quite sure about that. I don't know. It could be, believe, but yeah. I, I, it's hard to know, isn't it? It yeah. is just such, such a load of rubbish, though, in general. Do you know what I mean? It's just so backward. Linda says, why doesn't the Commons have a dress code? Um, I.e., skirts no shorter than your knee, um, and an alternative trousers. It does have a dress code, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean. Really? Some um, of them do look a state in the House of Commons, though. But isn't it just professional standards? Because I have to say, like, I just think, if you're going to do something professional, like, I've put a dress on today and I look at myself and I think, that's quite low, actually. So then I put a vest on, just so it's a bit more professional. Your but viewers then... will be gutted. <laughs> the well, Cabinet will be absolutely they'll be horrified. Dis uh, they'll be very distracted now, Michelle. <laughs> you can't see anyway, look, because we've got that big name strap there that that's covers... True. It covers the crucial part. It's like a monastery. Oh, it does, actually. It does look, look at that. that. <laughs> if you're watching well, the screen right now... If you're it's distracted... Like a... Sorry the cabinet. Yeah, it's a modesty <laughs> strap. If you're not watching the screen and you're listening on the radio, if you're in your car or something, you're going, what's she talking about? What I'm talking about is we've got a big strap that happens to say as we speak, get in touch, GB Views at GBNews.uk. That's what's going on now. So whatever was underneath my dress, quite frankly, you wouldn't be able to see. <laughs> so modesty, um, I think, is the way forward in a professional environment anyway. <laughs>